Look at the way the old man glared at Ashley. She's can't even tone it down for Mom's funeral. What do you expect? Dad's still living in the 50s. Expects his granddaughter to dress a little more modestly. Yeah, well, your kid's wearing a Lions jersey. I'm sure Dad appreciates that. What I'm trying to make is that there's nothing anyone can do that won't disappoint the old man. It's inevitable. You know, that's why we stopped doing Thanksgivings. You know, that deal with the boat motor, the broken birdbath, it's always something. What are you gonna do with him? You know, don't you think he's gonna get in trouble over there? All by himself in the old neighborhood? Why don't you have him move in with you? Death is often a bittersweet occasion to us Catholics. Bitter in the pain, sweet in the salvation. How are you holding up, Walt? Mr. Kowalski. Huh? Mr. Kowalski, that's my name. Right, Mr. Kowalski. Your wife and I became quite close these last few months. She asked that I watch over you when she passed on. I told her I watch over my entire flock, but she made me promise I'd keep an extra sharp eye on you. Look, I appreciate the kindness you've shown to my wife. Now that you've spoken your piece, why don't you go tend to some of your other sheep? Okay. D Dorothy mentioned specifically that it was her desire for you to go to confession. She said she couldn't remember the last time you went. Is that so? It is. Well, I confess that I never really cared for church very much. The only reason I went was because of her. And I confess that I have no desire to confess to a boy that's just out of the seminary. Ah, that is Walt Kowalski from the movie Grand Torino. And uh, how about a round of applause for our production team who were able to edit out all the cursing and uh, <laughs> violence and everything else that would be completely inappropriate about that movie. But it's perfect for what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, Walt Kowalski is a veteran of the Korean War. He worked for decades at a Ford factory in uh, Detroit, and over the course of those decades, the neighborhood where his home is changed significantly, primarily because there was a community of refugees that move in around him. Refugees from the Hmong community of Southeast Asia, they flee Southeast Asia when the U.S. withdraws from Vietnam. And so now his wife has died, he's facing his own death, and he's kind of looking around and trying to make sense of the world around him, this changing world around him. What is he supposed to think of all of this? And then there's this jolly young priest who keeps popping by, reminding him that what his wife really wanted was for him to go to confession. And that's where I want to start today. Go to confession. So if we could just start a line over there. No, we won't do that. Uh, it, it, we, we, in the Apostles' Creed, we, one of the things we say is we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And sometimes people are like, what is the Holy Catholic? I thought we were Lutheran. So Catholic is just a fancy word that means universal. One church. There's one church, a lot of different stripes and a lot of different ways that uh, people you know, practice that Christian faith. But there's only one Christian faith. 
Uh, if you're familiar with Roman Catholicism, one of the sacraments in Roman Catholicism is confession. You go to the church and there's a special place there, a booth sometimes, and the priest is on one side and the people are on the other side and they're divided by a screen or a veil or something that kind of makes you think it's anonymous, and there you confess your sins to the priest. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. Where does that idea come from in the Bible? Well, let's back up to uh, the Old Testament. Last week, we touched on the Ark of the Covenant a little bit, and I can't believe how many people emailed me last week and said, could we please talk about the Ark of the Covenant more? Nobody did that, actually, but we're going to do it. <laughs> we're going to do it anyway. Um, the Ark of the Covenant, remember, there it contains a couple of different things, um, and so you're not supposed to go close to it. You're not supposed to open it up, and the way you would open it up would be to take off the cover. And the cover of the ark is called the place of atonement. The place of atonement, sometimes it's referred to as the mercy seat. And if you uh, think about the day of atonement or Yom Kippur, one of the high holy religious holidays for the people of Israel, this happened every year. And it was when the whole, uh, all of the people would confess their sins together and then if you want to read through Leviticus 16, it will kind of detail very specifically the process through which forgiven would be granted to God's people. And the priest plays a very important role in this process on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur. One of the things that the priest does, there's a sacrificing of animals. And so the priest would take some of the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkle it on the cover of the ark. Sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the place of atonement, on the mercy seat, and this would be one of the things that was necessary in order for forgiveness to be granted to God's people. But what I want you to understand is the priest played a very important role in that process of forgiveness. Fast forward to uh, the New Testament, and one of the things that Jesus gets in trouble for is he's going around telling people, your sins are forgiven. And the leaders are like, time out. Only God has the power. Only God has the authority to forgive sins. What does this guy think he's doing? And so the forgiveness of sins is one of those things that points us to the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus is in fact God. Jesus is the Son of God, or as we say in the uh, Apostles' Creed, we believe in God the Father, we believe in Jesus Christ, God's Son, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. Jesus is part of the Godhead. He's divine. He has the power to forgive sins. And at the end of his time on earth, after his death and resurrection, Jesus gathers his disciples together. There's only 11 of them now because uh, Judas has killed himself. And Jesus gives them instructions how to carry out this mission that Jesus has started, this mission, this movement that would become the church. He tells his 11 disciples this. In fact, let's read this together. John 20, verse 23. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Instructions on how the church is supposed to work. Jesus says to the leadership of the church, I'm giving you power, giving you authority to play a role in this process of the forgiveness of people's sins. And so very early on in church history, this practice started where you would go to the leaders of the church, you would confess your sins, and then you would receive forgiveness from God, but through the priest you would forgive, receive forgiveness of sins. This is a tremendous power, isn't it? Look at this. I give you power to forgive people's sins, but what about this last line? I also give you power not to forgive people's sins. What happens to power in the hands of human beings? It often gets abused. And that happens over the course of church history. 
the leadership of the church started to use the power to forgive and maybe even the power to withhold forgiveness, they used that as a way of controlling people, as a way of scaring people into participation in the life of the church, scaring people into giving financially to the life of the church, which reminds me, I wanted to talk a little bit about our finances. No. Um, (laughs) By the time Martin Luther comes on the scene, he sees a whole lot going on in the church that is not good that's corrupt, that isn't helpful, that isn't biblical, that needs to be reformed. Confession is one of those things. Confession was turned into sheer terror and a hellish torture that one had to go through even if one detested confession more than anything, Luther writes. And so part of the reforming work that Luther does, he goes to the Bible, to the Word of God, and he reminds people, you know, you don't actually have to go to confession. You don't have to go to a priest in order to confess your sins. You can go directly to God. Yes, priests had this important role in the Old Testament as mediators of the Old Covenant. And now we're New Covenant people because of Jesus. Because of Jesus and this New Covenant, we have one mediator between God and human beings, and it's Jesus Christ. That's what Paul writes to Timothy, a young pastor, trying to figure out how this whole thing works. And and, uh, what Luther is trying to remind people, Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice. We don't have to do this annual sacrificing of animals and sprinkling of blood anymore. Jesus died once and for all, that sacrificial lamb, and he is the mediator of this new covenant. Now, you don't have to go to confession. You don't have to go to a a priest. You can go directly to God. You can tell God the truth about yourself. And that leads to a question I think would be important for us to kind of explore together. How good are you at telling the truth about yourself. Go to the next slide. This is a note I got from my daughter, Saffron. She'll be eight next month. This is my Father's Day card. Dear Daddy, you're my dad. I really love you. You're the fattest, though, because of your belly. (laughs) How good are you at telling the truth about yourself? Sometimes we need other people to tell us the truth about ourselves, don't we? And particularly, I think when it comes to our bodies, we're terrible at this, right? We we fill our houses with mirrors and with scales and we buy clothing that has measurements to it so that we can know the truth about the condition of our body and then we avoid those things and we get angry at those things when we don't like the truth that they are proclaiming. And think about how cautious we are around scales. We've got to take our shoes off before we step on a scale like it's holy ground or something, right? And there's only one time every day that we will step on the scale. First thing in the morning, before you had anything to eat, after you've gone to the restroom. We are preachers of habit. And what's going on? Anyway, thankfully, most of us understand body weight is probably not the most accurate way of talking about the health of our bodies, the condition of our bodies. It's like body fat content nowadays. So there's a guy named Ken Davis, an author, kind of a humorist. He says, I've got an inexpensive way for you to figure out your body fat content. Um, You might want to write this down, take notes here. He says, next time you get out of a shower, grab a stopwatch and stand in front of a full-length mirror totally naked. Start the watch, stomp your foot on the floor as hard as you can. When stuff stops moving, punch the watch and check the time. He says, I'm down to two days, three hours, and six minutes. Ah. We are not always very good at telling ourselves the truth. 
And Luther understood this. He, he understood human nature. He said, from a theological standpoint, it works. You don't have to go to a priest in, in order to confess your sins. You can go great, straight to God. Theologically, that works. But Luther was also a very practical theologian. Because he understood human nature and the reality that so many people would just choose not to do it, and that actually is what happened as soon as Luther says, yeah, it was a sacrament in the Catholic Church, it's not going to be, confession is not going to be a sacrament in the Protestant Church, guess what stopped happening? People stopped going to confession. And so Luther had something to say to the people in his day who stopped going to confession. He says, they do as they please and apply their freedom wrongfully as if it meant that they ought not or must not go to confession. But, as I have said, such pigs should not be allowed near the gospel. Luther was a real touchy-feely pastor. What, what is Luther getting at here? No, confession is not a sacrament. You don't have to go to a priest. But you cannot separate confession from the gospel. In, in order for the gospel to be good news, that God loves us, that God has grace for us, God has forgiveness for us. We have to tell the truth about our sin. We, we have to understand how desperately we are in need of grace and mercy and forgiveness. If we forget our desperate need for that, the good news stops being good news. But it's actually very easy to forget, and that gets us to King David. Our, our message series this month, we've been looking at the books of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, Life Lessons from King David. Today's lesson is about confession. At this point in the story, David has been king for a couple of decades, and a lot of really good things have happened, but also some not-so-great things happen. Like, you know, if you've been king for 20 years, you get used to getting your own way. You get used to having people as your beck and call people, that they will go and do this or, or get that for you whenever you want it, whenever you need it, whenever you ask. And so the story, we pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 11, and interesting, the biblical writer starts it off by telling us it's springtime, and this is the time of the year when kings normally go off to war. And so David sends Joab, the commander of his army, and he sends the army out to battle the Ammonites. But, however, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. The biblical writer is wanting us to understand something abnormal is happening here, something unusual. This is not the way things are supposed to be, and that kind of sets up everything else that happens in the chapter. Uh, David is not an old man yet. Um, he's not a young man anymore. He's not the golden boy anymore. Perhaps at this point in his life, women don't look at him the way they used to look at him. Maybe he's been looking in the mirror and thinking, uh, what's this Rogaine thing people are talking about? Maybe I need to start getting in shape and exercising and install a track around the palace. He starts adding Metamucil to the royal diet, but he doesn't tell anybody. <laughs> Perhaps he's having a midlife crisis. He's accomplished so much. What more is there to accomplish? Maybe he's restless. Maybe he's bored. Maybe he's lonely. Leadership can be a very lonely place. And the Bible doesn't tell us who does the king talk to about all of his thoughts and all of his feelings. It looks like he doesn't talk to anybody. The Bible doesn't tell us why David stays behind in Jerusalem, but the Bible does tell us what happens next. He goes out on uh, the roof of his palace in the afternoon, and he sees Bathsheba taking a bath. And sometimes in this part of the story, people try to, you know, let David off the hook. Like, what's she doing taking a bath outside anyway? So let's remember, David was not supposed to be there. 
David was somewhere he was not supposed to be. The text is very clear about this. And then remember that culture in, in that time period. They didn't have hot water heaters. They had barrels on the roof of their buildings. And the rain would fall and fill up the barrels. And the sun would heat it up throughout the day. The water would be the warmest in the middle of the afternoon. Biblical scholars are in agreement. This would have been the customary practice. There's nothing in the text, nothing in the text, that would suggest Bathsheba is doing anything wrong. But there are all kinds of things in the text that would suggest David is doing all kinds of things wrong. You remember uh, your English grammar classes. I know it's summer, nobody wants to think about school, but remember the structure of sentences? There's a subject and there's an object. In this part of the story, David is the subject of almost every sentence and Bathsheba the object. David sees her. David sends for her, David sleeps with her, David sends her away. There's, there's nothing in the text that talks about the humanity of Bathsheba. She doesn't speak in this story. We don't know what she's thinking, we don't know what she's feeling. It's almost like she's just this object to be used, and that's exactly what David does. Eventually, word comes to David that Bathsheba is pregnant. He's kind of in freak-out mode. He sends for Uriah, who is in the army, fighting the battle, brings Uriah home, hoping Uriah will be feeling romantic, but he's not. He knows he's not supposed to be here. He's supposed to be with his band of brothers. Eventually, he goes back to the battlefield, and David sends a note to his commander, make sure Uriah is on the front lines, the place that's the most dangerous, the place where more than likely he will be killed in battle, and that's exactly what happens. Bad things happen. Horrible things happen. And David is responsible for all of it. In, in this movie, Gran Torino, the priest keeps showing up in different settings in Walt's life, trying to urge Walt to uh, go to confession. These two clips that we're about to watch, uh, the first one, the priest walks into a bar, which kind of sounds like a setup for a joke, but it's just what's going on in the movie. The second one, they're on Walt's front porch, and they're having some pretty interesting conversations. Take a look. So, what do you want? I promised your wife I'd get you to go to confession. Now, why would you do that? She was very insistent. She made me. Well, you're kind of fond of promising things you can't deliver on, right, Father? Let's talk about something else. What? Life and death. Yeah, you get up and preach about life and death, but all you know is what you learned in preschool, right out of the rookie preacher's handbook. I don't know about that. I think... Death is bittersweet. Sort of bitter in its pain, but sweet in its salvation. That's what you know about life and death, and it's pathetic. What do you know, Mr. Kowalski? I know a lot. I've lived for almost three years in Korea with his bikes. We shot men, stabbed them with bayonets, hacked 17-year-olds to death with shovels. Stuff I'll remember till the day I die. Horrible things. But things I'll live with. And what about life? Well, I... I survived the war. Got married, had a family. Sounds like you know a lot more about death than you do living. 
I've been thinking about our conversation on life and death, about what you said, about how you carry around all the horrible things you were forced to do, horrible things that won't leave you. It seems it would do you good to unload some of that burden. Things done during war are terrible. Being ordered to kill, killing to save yourself, killing to save others. You're right. Those are things I know nothing about. But I do know about forgiveness. And I've seen a lot of men who have confessed their sins, admitted their guilt, and left their burdens behind them. Stronger men than you. Men at war who were ordered to do appalling things and are now at peace. Well, I gotta hand it to you, Padre. You came here with your guns loaded this time. Thank you. And you're right about one thing, about stronger men than me reaching their salvation. But you're wrong about something else. What's that, Mr. Kowalski? The thing that haunts a man the most is what he isn't ordered to do. The longer I'm in ministry, the more convinced I am that last thought from Mr. Kowalski is true for all of us. The thing that haunts us most, a man or a woman, is the things we're not ordered to do. The things that we do for whatever reason, maybe we think it's right, maybe we know it's wrong, but we think we won't get caught, and so we do it. And even if we've asked for forgiveness, and if we've changed and repented and have faith, Somebody can say something, somebody can do something, and all of a sudden the guilt and the shame of that thing that haunts us comes flooding back. David has done some things that should haunt him. He kind of seems to be flaunting it. He's killed Uriah, and the first thing he does is after her mourning period is over, he marries Bathsheba and has her move into the palace, and he's like successfully navigated everything. The worst thing in the world has been avoided, and that would have been if people had found out what I've done. But he's about to discover the worst thing in the world would be to hide what he has done for the rest of his life. In, in chapter 11, he's kind of this God figure. He's the one commanding everybody around, controlling people's life. You do this, you do this, you do this. You turn the page to chapter 12, and David's about to discover there's only one God in Israel, and it's not David. Here's how chapter 12 begins. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet. The Lord sends Nathan the prophet to hold David accountable, to be a truth teller in David's life. And you got to understand, this would not have been an easy task for Nathan. David has all the power. Nathan knows David is capable of killing in order to get what he wants. And so Nathan's got to be thinking, if the king doesn't like what I have to say to him, it may be bad news for me. And so he begins with this story about a rich guy who rips off a poor guy, takes his only lamb, his prized possession, this animal that he would cuddle like his own daughter is what the biblical text says. How long do you suppose Nathan thought and prayed before he figured out how he wanted to start this conversation with David? And, and I mention that because I think a lot of times when we start talking about being a prophetic voice, when we start talking about being truth-tellers in someone's life or holding people accountable. There are some people who are kind of wired that's like, all right, green light, that's just what I needed because I know the correct way to live and to behave. I know all the answers, and if you just let me loose on people, I'd be happy to tell them the truth. 
So let's calm ourselves down a little bit and remind ourselves there's an important distinction between being a prophet and being a jerk. And we've all, I think, been on the receiving end of people in the name of prophecy who've just been jerks, unloving, unkind. What burns in the heart of a true prophet is not just anger at sin, it's also love for this world that God has created. And so Nathan comes to David angry at what Nathan, uh, David has done, absolutely, but also loving David, wanting the best for David. So he begins with a story as a way of connecting to David's heart, his heart for what is right, his, his heart for justice. And it works. By the time we get to the end of the story, David's pretty riled up. The Bible says he is furious. Any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. And the prophet looks the king in the eye and says, you are the man. You are the man. God gave you the kingdom and the power and the glory, and it wasn't enough for you. You killed Uriah and you took his wife. You are the man, David. And let's read together how David responds to this truth from the prophet. It's on the bottom of the screen here. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. We all know truth-telling is important. We know that Speaking the truth is one of the ways in which we grow. It's required in order for us to, to be changed and transformed. We know telling the truth is a part of loving people. So why is there so little of it in our world? It's because it's scary. We know if we have to speak the hard truth to someone, a painful truth to someone, we face being rejected by them. Perhaps they'll tell to us, you know, why don't you keep your nose out, out of our business? Or maybe they'll start quoting scripture at us. Whoever is without sin can cast the first stone. You think you're so perfect. Why are you paying attention to the speck in my eye when you got a log in your own eye? And so the reality is we, we speak the truth until it gets uncomfortable and then we trade in the truth for peace. And we end up with what Scott Peck calls pseudo-community where the goal is we just want everything to kind of be safe. And, and we understand our group well enough to, we only talk in generalities about things we're pretty sure we're all in agreement on to begin with. And we carefully filter our conversations so that we don't say anything to offend anyone. One of the hallmarks of pseudo-community is conflict avoidance. Think about what our, what our vision is at Hope, to be a spirited, growing and Christ-centered community. Not a pseudo-community, real community, authentic community, Christ-like community. Scott Peck says in order to get to that kind of a place, to move from pseudo-community to true community, you have to be willing to enter into a little bit of chaos. You have to have some hard conversations where things kind of feel out of control, where there's conflict, and most of us aren't very comfortable with that. Jesus seems to be comfortable with that. He's not afraid of conflict, not afraid of a little chaos. One time Jesus is walking down the road with his disciples and the disciples are hanging back just far enough that they can have a conversation without Jesus hearing. When they get to where they're going, Jesus sits them down and says, hey, what were you talking about back there on the road? And they were talking about which one of us is the greatest? And now Jesus has brought it up, brought up the elephant in the room and they they have to have a conversation about it. And Jesus is willing to do that because he knows it's going to lead to a place of greater connection and greater community. What about you? In your family, in your circle of friends, how willing are you to enter the chaos for the sake of true community? 
Or do you just kind of prefer year after year after year to keep the peace? Do you have someone in your life that you have given permission to, to be a Nathan for you, to be a truth teller in your life? Speaking the truth in love, not going to be something that happens every time you sit down, but occasionally, do you have anyone in your life who can speak the hard truth to you? Like I've got saffron in my life for that, right? Who, who do you have in your life that does? And have, have any of your friends said to you, would you be willing to speak the truth and love to me occasionally? Well, one of the realities of Christian community, we hold up a mirror so that we can see things that we couldn't see otherwise. Our blind spots, those sorts of things. And if you don't have those kinds of relationships in your life, why not? Why not? What would it take for you to make that step and move in that direction? I'm not going to have it with everybody, but you've got to have at least one person you can be honest with like that. One more clip from this movie, Gran Torino. The young priest keeps showing up and trying to urge Walt to go to confession, and Walt keeps resisting. One of the other storylines is this relationship that he develops with his neighbors, uh, people he doesn't understand, and at the beginning of the movie, he just kind of despises them because they look a lot like the people he was fighting against in Korea. But over the course of time, he gets to know them, befriend them, uh, understand their cultures and their customs and their values. And at one point in the movie, he says, I have more in common with these people, my neighbors, than I do with my own family. And he ends up getting invited to a celebration that they're having in, in one of their homes. And there's a man there who ends up speaking the truth to Walt in a way that he can actually hear. Take a look. Thanks. You know, you mentioned about uh, looking at people. He's been staring at me the whole evening. That's Korku. He's a Lord family shaman. And what's that? Some sort of a witch doctor or something? Something like that. Yeah, love book. <laughs> You're funny, Korku's interested in you. He heard what you did. He would like to read you. It'd be rude not to allow him this. It's a great honor. Yeah, sure. Fine by me. All right. Sure. Take a seat. Here. He says that people do not respect you. They don't even want to look at you. He says the way you live, your food has no flavor. You're worried about your life. He says you have no happiness in your life. It's like you're not at peace. It's possible you came to worship today with a heart that was lacking peace, a heart that was restless, a heart that maybe because of the burden of 
the guilt and shame over your sin. You're just not quite sure what to do. St. Augustine wrote a book called uh, The Confessions. And he writes in there, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And so part of the hope of confession is that it can lead us to this place where our hearts are at peace, our hearts are at rest, because we trust, we believe God's love for us. The psalm that David writes after Samuel 11 and 12 is Psalm 51. And part of what he says in there is, God, you desire truth in the innermost being. And so we want to give you the opportunity to be honest with God, truthful with God, and confess your sin. We'll do that together as a congregation. We'll invite you to do that if you'd like. But I also want to encourage you, uh, sometime later today or in the next couple of days, find some time to be alone with God and just have that honest conversation as you confess your sin. I've asked Ashley, who is our pastoral intern, we're going to read some scripture that I hope will prepare our hearts and our minds for confession. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. People who conceal their sins will not prosper, but if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sin. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. So I'd like to invite you to stand, and we will pray this prayer of confession together. It's three different slides, so let's pray together. Gracious God, our sins are too heavy to carry, too real to hide, and too deep to undo. Forgive what our lips tremble to name, what our hearts can no longer bear, and what has become for us a consuming fire of judgment. We confess we are slow to learn and prone to forget. We are pained by our graceless hearts, 
our prayerless days, our poverty of love, our wasted hours, our unspent opportunities. We are blind while the light shines around us. Take the scales from our eyes, grind to dust our hearts of unbelief. Set us free from a past that we cannot change. Open to us a future in which we can be changed and grant us grace to grow more and more in your likeness and image through Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Amen. And now receive this assurance of forgiveness. Almighty God, who does freely pardon all who repent and turn to him, now fulfill in every contrite heart the promise of redeeming grace, forgiving all our sins and cleansing us from an evil conscience through the perfect sacrifice of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. <laughs>